The Cyber Menace podcast is for educational purposes only. The views expressed by hosts and guests are their own, not necessarily their employers. Advice discussed is general advice. We promote ethical discussions, not illegal activities. Listen responsibly. Welcome back to the Cyber Minutes podcast. My name is Max, as always, and I'm joined by Flynn and also our special guest who's returning, uh, Flynn, as well. Recurring. Yeah, that's it. So, topic for today is the near future of cybersecurity in Australia. Uh, so, we're going to talk a little bit about the PIP Act, CPS 230 a little bit. There's some third-party kind of stuff that CPS 230 touches on, so it's it's half relevant to cybersecurity as well and as well as the CPS 234 reviews. Flynn, why don't you start us off on, on this one? Yeah, so the PIP Act, which is Privacy and Personal Information Protection Act, um, it's getting an amendment that's coming live November 28th. The big change to it is that local governments now are going to have to comply with it, which means that local governments are now going to have to report data breaches, which is a big deal. And they so just for clarity, they weren't doing that before, were they? No. So they, working with a lot of local governments, a lot of them would anyway, just from their moral perspective, and a massive risk to local government. Basically, the major impact to them is reputation. So they want to keep their reputation intact. You could argue that that's incentive to not report it. You could also argue that's incentive to report it, to keep that transparency with the community so that they know what's going on. And I guess as well, uh, local local government and I guess local councils right they're not the same as companies where a lot of their respect and a lot of their reputation ties into the work that they do in the community yeah so it's basically entirely the community perception is the main driving force behind them that's how they get grant money that's how they get donations they don't have the community trust there's not really much point in being there so i guess it's the same as almost having a having a company except your breaking the dial, cranking up all the way that you need that reputation more than anything else. Yeah, exactly. So what is going to be a major concern with them is that they're going to be forced to up their cybersecurity now. And so just also another question, are they going to have to report prior breaches or just... No. So it's only going to be breaches that after November 28th, which if they had to do beforehand would be a massive bombshell. I'm sure that it would not be pretty. But it's going to be afterwards, which is still a big deal. Local governments, obviously, they have a lot of budget constraints and stuff like that. Um, a lot of the time, they can't even really afford a lot of information security. You know, a lot of them don't really hold too highly sensitive information, so they don't really have it there. But that being said, if it's a data breach, they're going to have to report it anyway. The OAIC's definition of data breach is something that can cause serious harm, which I don't know how many of you work at cybersecurity. Serious harm is a very loose term i think they say psychological or physical damage is their definition but that could be anything and that's just as vague yeah you know a lot of people really misunderstand how dangerous data can be a lot of people don't report certain data breaches because it's not deemed dangerous and then you know come down the line if you get a really sophisticated attacker they can do something based off of very little data Uh, i think i may have mentioned it before but there was an instance where it was just like class schedules and emergency contact and basically someone called up the emergency contact saying, I took your child and I'm holding them for ransom. And yeah, that it can be really scary and people, they don't recognize it, but they don't think they have to report it. You may have already mentioned this or talked about this prior, but what, what's, what's the current landscape of like 
breaches in, in local government. I wouldn't have imagined them getting breached at all. Obviously, everybody's a target and everybody's a victim, but yeah, I haven't. So they're interesting because, as I said, a lot of them don't hold highly sensitive data. It's not the case with all of them. Some of them do. And it really changes a lot. Another thing is that a lot of them are really heavily reliant on third parties. And we know that supply chain attacks are so common in Australia and really worldwide because, you know, why go to a fort that's well guarded when you can just go on the back way that's got a little picket fence? <laughs> so they are heavily reliant on third parties. And a lot of them are reliant on the same third parties. So if, that, if one third party gets breached, they're all basically done. But that being said, as I said, a lot of them are a little bit behind because they don't have the budget. You know, they haven't had the kind of government breathing down their necks saying you have to report breaches. So they haven't, they're going to be a little bit behind. And it's going to be a little bit scary, a little bit of a wake up call. I do know a lot of them, from my experience, are taking it seriously. Mm. Hopefully, that's most of them. Yeah, but you know, I can't confidently say that. So, are the, so they are getting breached because this, like, they are getting breached, breached at some sort of frequency. Uh, yeah, so they're getting breached at some sort of frequency. Obviously, who's who knows how often, and a lot of them are too large scale. Like a lot of them like a close instances from what I've seen but who knows once this goes live we could wind up it could be a whole different box of frogs yeah <laughs> could be suddenly you know two breaches a week are happening yeah okay so I guess, I guess we'll find out uh, in other news so CPS2 well back to the third parties uh, CPS230 you mentioned it a lot of it's third party a lot of it's business continuity as well uh, but I think we'll touch on the business continuity in a different episode because that's a whole massive topic yep from my understanding, what CPS 230 is doing is it's taking a couple different uh, things like CPS 232 maybe. It's taking a couple different standards. It's collating them and cleaning them up. Okay. And then it's adding a couple extra uh, requirements. A big one is third parties will now have to know their own third party capability. So fourth parties, which that is going to be very, very difficult. Uh, a lot of people don't do third party management well. Yep. And for reference like some people will have hundreds of third parties and um knowing that those third parties are also doing the same due diligence on their third parties yep. which is what is supposed to happen with a lot of afro requirements is that your third party has the same capability as you that's so what you're supposed to do in theory you should be able to get their information to be able to have that on all of your fourth parties right yeah so the well not necessarily you just need to have that assurance that they are doing that okay so you don't necessarily have to you know go to them and then get a hundred different order reports from your hundred different vendors because that's unfeasible yeah but you basically just need to have that assurance that they have a third-party program that they're doing correctly but it's going to be very difficult a lot of people don't do third-party management well and fourth-party management is going to be a big scare and CPS 230 is 2025, which seems like it's far away. But if you think, if you think, say, someone has 100 vendors and you have to do a really big vendor assessment of them, that's going to take a whole year, yeah. at least. That's a big project. And suddenly it's 2024. Suddenly it's 2025. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So you said that 230 is combining a few of the other smaller ones, 232. Uh, I don't know the exact ones. I think that was 232, but don't quote me on that. But it's not including 234. No, 234 is separate. Okay. So 234s, uh, they've just gone through the tripartite reviews now. And 
funnily enough, one of the big findings from the tripartite reviews is that third-party managers not done well. You know, the big couple of things we've seen, uh, APRA has come out with a couple of the findings that are common. A big one's reporting. A big one's understanding their materiality, their like vendors that are material, and third-party management in general. That's another thing that is crucial to third-party management. As I said, if you've got 100 vendors, you really need to understand uh, what's your material vendors. What I mean by materiality is that, you know, if that vendor was breached, if that vendor was went down, what's the impact? Is that going to be a massive impact on your organization? Is that data critical? And yeah, you really need to understand what's materiality to your business and what third parties are material. Because as I said, doing a, if you treated them all as material, imagine just trying to do that on a hundred different vendors. It's not feasible. Like, no. what are you going to do? Order all of them? <laughs> no, it's not, it's not possible. And that was a couple of the major findings from the tripartite reviews. Right. And so third party, it's going to be a big, big section. And that's somewhere, that's something in cyber that a lot of people don't really think about or associate with it when you tell yeah. them about cybersecurity. So third party risk, yeah. it's, it's all going to be, um, a fairly big talking point in the next couple of years. Yeah, and after the Colonial Pipeline incident, so I think that opened up a lot of people's eyes into how devastating third-party attacks can really be. Yeah, you, You'll find a lot of really different conflicting statistics online about how many third-party attacks there are. I think I found, I found them as low as 30. I found them as high as like 60 to 70. So it's really hard to get an actual number. But it's... Probably one of the most common attack forms on organizations right now. Yep. And especially because everyone's relying on third parties. Like yep. if Microsoft gets breached, that's basically the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> We're all done. <laughs> it's not many people do it well. And it's going to be a really big wake up call. Um, I think people are going to be really nervous around mid next year, about 2.30. Yeah. And a lot of late nights. A lot of late nights for risk managers. They have enough as they as they do already, and um, be ready for it. Well, let's move on to a little bit more of a uh, a different topic. So, experts in quotes in cyber, how do you tell if someone's actually got the creds to back up what they're saying? So, this is it's interesting for us because even though we're experts, we are very new to the industry. So, we're still obviously learning as we go. Yeah, but I think we're getting to that point where we can tell if someone's bullshitting. One of my major red flags is if somebody is saying everything that's going to make everyone happy mm. and that if I looked up, I don't know, what we just talked about, CPS 230, if they said exactly what they were going to say, as you saw online, that's immediately a red flag to me. Right. So if they're, they're reading off Wikipedia, yeah. <laughs> then obviously then you know they're not someone who's going to be extremely knowledgeable in the topic. And... I mean, the usefulness of this podcast is that we get to sort of discuss things with each other and bounce things off, bounce, yeah. bounce conversations. And it can, I think, probably... the discussion aspect of it. Exactly. Can, you know, we disagree and we can get things maybe wrong, but that's the beauty of it. Or we're learning as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And when you have someone who hasn't had any experience in discussion about a topic, about maybe about AI or about cybersecurity in general, computer hacking, ethical hacking, cloud, then it does kind of show that they're not able to explain it in a in a convincing or a enticing way to people. Yeah, you get I've seen instances where 
they have like these what they say and then as soon as they're kind of pressed about anything they kind of immediately retract because you can see that nobody's ever like asked them anything further than the what's face value how about you flint what is your like key takeaways maybe not even cyber maybe so yeah it's uh, i'm not i'm not in the cyber sphere but yeah it's kind of the same thing if i'm hearing buzzwords i'm i'm instantly some there's there's bells going off in my head Buzzwords don't automatically give it away. Sometimes people are trying to convey yeah, things was, to yeah, their buzzwords. Buzzwords prick your ears, so, so they're they're a good way to get grab attention. But you got to follow that up with something yeah. something substantial. I mean, the biggest example for me recently has just been hearing the word full stack. Like yeah. this is this is a web developmental term. Like you know, you got two sides of web development. You got you got making the website look pretty, and then you got making the website work. But one's front end, one's back end, and full stack is just the the combination of both a lot of people like to throw full stack around because it makes you sound cool and all expert but really it just we've done all this full stack development yeah yeah <laughs> and so i guess it would be similar in um similar in insider security people are throwing around words like pen testing or or blockchain with a big bluffer <laughs> chain network you know some AI. AI is the top topic now. Hot topic now. Yeah. Yeah. Buzzwords get all of yeah. finance bros coming out of the woodworks. All the Web3 guys are oh, from yes. Web3 to AI, just like that. Would you guys reckon when people explain things in a way that's hard to understand, that's awesome? Or it, it can be. Not, not all the time, but it can be. It can be that they know their stuff really well, but they don't know how to explain it very well. Yeah. The, it also can be that they're trying to confuse everyone so that no one asks questions. no one asks questions. Yeah. Which that's also a sign that someone's uh maybe we're gonna coin a term here, fexpert. Yeah. Fake expert. <laughs> As AI is becoming this thing, you know, I'm sure we're gonna see a lot of people who know how to prompt or know how to write a few prompts in chat GPT, figure out how to, you know, have it do some certain tasks and then suddenly go around AI expert. AI expert here, AI expert there. I mean, we've already seen it, really. And, you know, I suppose it's some people overestimate their ability as well. Like, so we may say we're experts, but obviously there's people who are significantly better than us. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I don't claim to be a... Uh, I'm not going to walk up to someone and put my title in as a, I'm a cybersecurity expert. That's another thing I think a lot of the time when people self-proclaim stuff, that's a really big uh, no. red flag. If somebody's telling me that, oh, Flynn's really good at this, I'm going to believe that if Flynn tells me I am an AI expert. <laughs> I go, okay, buddy. <laughs> Ask two questions and then they go, oh, yeah, I don't know. I got to run to the toilet and Google yeah. what you just told me real quick. <laughs> so just as an example, I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago, maybe even been months at this point, and um, there was an AI person at the top at, on the panel. And they were, I think they were partially there because they were, AI is such a hot topic, and I think that may have just been there because they needed somebody for that company to be there. But one, there was a couple major red flags. The start is when they started getting asked questions from the audience, they were immediately kind of sitting there like, oh, well, I'm kind of lower down. I do more like, I like the line one person. Where like immediately when they're coming up with sort of, I don't know if we'd say excuses, but like reasons for why they wouldn't know a certain thing, that immediately is a red flag to me. And then afterwards, because I do have an interest in AI, I kind of went to them afterwards and I was asking them about how you would combat fraud with AI. And they kind of just completely diverted the question, went a completely separate way 
And uh, afterwards, I was just kind of sitting there like, what, what, what did you even tell me? And then I was like, it clicked afterwards, and I was like, oh, I don't think they actually knew what they were talking about. Yeah. Yes. So I think a couple of buzzwords maybe in cybersecurity might be hacker hacking. Mm. I feel like people can talk about ethical hacking and talk about, you know, the art of hacking and how to do it. But if they're not, not going to try and say something to actually describe what kind of hacking is going on, just... Yeah, I mean, I've actually seen this quite a bit for that example is when they you see like a DDoS and like the hackers and say, is it... Is a DDoS really a hack? I suppose it, the term hack is a bit loose, but from my understanding, it's gaining unauthorized access to a system, yeah. which that's not a DDoS. No. no DDoS no. is you're denying service. And, and even then, that's that's just usually these days setting up a botnet and flooding the... Yeah, there's just too much traffic to something. Exactly. And how is that really a hack? <laughs> yeah. So with interviews and recruiting in, in uh, cybersecurity... Well, in software engineering, we have things called like, I think it's called leak code where, where you do yeah. and coding interviews where you show your skills in the interview. What's the equivalent in cybersecurity? And is, is there a valuable equivalent? That's a very, very good question. I, it comes down to grilling them, the person, I think. I think, unfortunately, because cybersecurity is such a vast topic and when you're hiring someone for a position, generally, you're going to have some kind of way that you're going to want to apply their knowledge to your company it's difficult to give them an exam or something. The best way is try and figure out what exactly they know and then apply that to, is that what you want? And kind of grilling them, asking questions that are maybe technical, maybe not technical, diving into depth a little bit when you're asking them questions is probably the closest thing we have because cybersecurity, you have people who are really good at identity, right? They're not necessarily going to know secure coding, right? That's not going to be their main prerogative. Same thing with if they're uh, working government's risk compliance. Yes. They're not going to need that. Whereas if you really need a secure coder, a secure coding uh, professional, right? You're not, again, you're not going to ask them cybersecurity questions from the third party perspective. Then you're going to have to run up secure code warrior tests for them in that case. There's really not one size bits all. There's not, no, definitely not in cybersecurity. I did have... When in my interview, granted this was like a year ago and I was still in uni, so obviously it was a little bit loose and they were kind of went easy on me. But they just literally gave me an output of um, a vulnerability scan and just kind of said, I went through, go through this and kind of recommend me different, how you would solve different issues. Um, And the point of it wasn't even that I was supposed to get it right. The point of it was, how do I convey this information? Yeah. So, you know, this was also like just before the chat GPT time. So this is probably not as effective because you could look up this is the vulnerability, yeah. give me an output. Yeah. But um, I, yeah, I just basically went through it and like a lot of it I probably got wrong, but my ma- the my manager now was kind of just testing how I would get things wrong and how I would convey information. And, you know, a lot of it I did go wrong, so he'd be like, oh no, this actually isn't right. <laughs> if you're preparing for an interview, any of these things uh, you, you could brush up on based on what you're, on what you're yeah. doing. So I guess the... Like in my head, the the purpose of leak code and coding interviews is to is to make sure that the the, the potential employee has that fundamental knowledge of how to how to write a few algorithms. But you're 
you're saying that there's no real common ground between all of the cybersecurity. It really is out there. It's really hard to find yeah, a common exactly. ground. It, 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 you probably can find a common ground. It also leaves a pen on the mole. So like certain roles will be like a cybersecurity engineer. They have to be technical. So you probably would even do leak codes and stuff like that. Yeah. But for like, for example, Max's um, job when you're a cybersecurity graduate, where the whole purpose of your role is you're switching in between different places and you're going to be a bit of a jack of all trades. How are you going to get test them? You can't. Yeah, it's it's too hard. Usually, you, you want to, you know, ask some questions and gauge their gauge their overall knowledge and type of person, their passion for cyber, and kind of understanding that baseline knowledge. But usually, they're going to ask questions like in a prior job. How did you notice any security problems? And see what your your responses are on. You know, have you been paying attention at your previous jobs? Yeah, yeah. That's kind of a baseline. Do you have the security or the threat mindset? That's probably the closest thing to a baseline is the security threat mindset. One thing I always saw in um, interviews or even like, the, I don't know if you ever like applied to a bank where they always give you like the pre-questionnaire thing. One thing that was always there was how have you conveyed information to a non-technical person? That was a question that was always there. Yeah. And it's something we've gone over before already, how important it is. So you don't realize how important it is until you're actually in yeah. the industry, and you realize how how much business has to do with cybersecurity. Uh, this is a bit of this is a bit of an interesting topic for me right now. It's like what what is your second favorite source of cybersecurity news outside of Cyber Minutes? Whoa! <laughs> I mean, for me, I really just look through kind of Google, LinkedIn. Um, maybe I, I might say Flynn's boss. <laughs> He's getting out on the podcast. William MacDessy, uh, I get quite a bit of my cyber news from him. LinkedIn, I can usually pick up the the more common stories, but a lot of it is um is yeah Google word of mouth. I own my own research. Yeah, I have for me, and I would recommend a lot of people do this. Is I just make a reading folder, and basically, a lot of the time I do at work when I'm having a coffee just before I get stuck into some work, like for 15 minutes. But I'll just have a bunch of different stories there. So the, my main couple ones are dark reading, even though I don't always agree with their articles, they're usually good for catching up with news. The hacker news is good. Krebs on security is really good. He doesn't come out with stories as often, but he's quite in depth. Um, he's a really good journalist. I'm a big fan of his. Nine News even for like Australian stuff. Um, yeah. ABC. I don't like the Sydney Morning Herald. Their, their news stories cut you off after the first two. Oh yeah, those, those are always the worst. Um, I also just like subscribe to some things, even though they can be annoying, like computer weekly. I think, I think that's what they were called. Now I don't even read their articles, but I just like that. Sometimes I get the topic thing and it's like meltwater is another one. It's just, yeah, it's just another sort of cybersecurity um, uh, news. It can be expensive because you do have to pay for a subscription, but if you're a student, like signing up to ASA and stuff like that, getting the ASA newsletters or the ACS, um, newsletters. They're really good. They give a lot of good insight into um, the industry. Speaking of Azar, again, uh, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but Flynn and I will be on the panel at the Azar New South Wales branch meeting on November 30th. I think that the registrations close about maybe a couple of days or a week before, so make sure to register for that as well while we're, while we're talking. Yeah. Um, in terms of other podcasts, Darknet Diaries is the most popular, but... Uh, you know, that was the kind of the one that really got me into cyber to begin with. Darknet Diaries covers like older stories, more just, yeah, it's more just true crime. More just, 
makes a bit of entertainment out of it. Yeah, but as an entry-level thing, it's entertaining and stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's good fun. I've listened to Shouting out some Australian podcasts. We've got Australian Sizo. I find pretty good with some of their stories. Yep. Well, not necessarily stories, but insights. Yep. Uh, KB Media is also pretty decent. That gives good interviews. Yep. And uh, another one I was just going to mention is uh, IT News. That's another uh, yeah. I'm I'm sort of somewhat infrequently checking out. And then, of course... Twitter and LinkedIn and Reddit or whatever. But the best one is Cyber Minutes. Yeah, of, of course. So make sure you follow. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Just a reminder that the Cyber Minutes podcast is for educational purposes only. The views expressed by hosts and guests are their own, not necessarily their employers. Advice discussed is general advice. We promote ethical discussions, not illegal activities. Have a cybersecurity question? Send an email to cyberminutespodcast at gmail.com as we'd love to answer it. Stay cyber safe.